Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the best damn move related show on the planet at the John Campia Show. Coming from right here in my quaint little studio, brought to you in part by our friends at Mint Mobile. I'm, of course, your host, John Campia, and it is an awesome honor and privilege, as it is every day, to have you, our international friends, gather around as we talk about our favorite things in the world, movies and movie news, TV and streaming, all sorts of good stuff. Not just giving you our opinions, but hopefully giving you some information and context so you guys can form your own well-informed opinions, whether they're the exact same or they end up being different from ours. Uh, Jonathan Voiko is uh, not in the studio today, so I'm running the show myself from inside my office, but I am very lucky to be joined by Chris Carr. Chris, how you doing? I am doing great. I'm coming to you from inside my booth in North Hollywood. Is that where you do like your like your auditions and some of your voice performances? Yeah. And, and that's right at home. Yep, right at home, which is amazing. And so a lot of times my auditions are here, but also now a lot of my work is here too. So whenever I have a video game and they don't want me to come to a studio, I can do it from right here and save them money. Well, that's awesome. And you were yeah. able to do the show with me today, which is yeah. fantastic. All right, Wonderful. guys, listen, this is how today's show is going to go. We're going to start off by talking about those topics that I'm about to list off to you. We're going to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles gets a surprise drop on Paramount today. We're going to talk about Elemental has the largest debut on Disney+. Plus. Ten things that I think James Gunn's DCU is going to have to do to succeed. The most anticipated shows of the fall of 2023. And uh, the showrunner from Netflix's Daredevil is blasting Disney's Daredevil reboot. We're going to talk about all that stuff. Then after we get through those topics, we're going to go over to our YouTube channel members. And for all of you who are YouTube channel members, thank you so much for being members of the channel. And we ask them every day to send in some topics and questions for us to discuss. And we're going to get through just as many as we can. All right. With that down, let's get things started here, shall we? You know, one of the most pleasant surprise little movies of the year uh, for me, at any rate, was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. I am not a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles guy. I mean, I am, but to the degree of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as the way they were originally depicted in the original black and white comics, right? I like the gritty, dark, violent Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles more than the cowabunga, skateboard-riding, pizza-eating dudes. But a lot of people love them. So I wasn't terribly excited about this new one, but... I really enjoyed the new one way more than I thought that I would. And a lot of people liked it. It had a 96% critic score, which is crazy. Now, unfortunately, it did not do as well at the box office as it deserved to do. It made $167 million total worldwide, which is not great. Um, it could have been worse, but it deserved much better. I, I really, really quite enjoyed this film, to be honest with you. And well, out of nowhere... Paramount yesterday announced in a quick surprise, because normally they make these announcements six weeks, a month, two months in advance when a movie is going to come and drop on their service. Well, they announced that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is dropping on Paramount Plus today. Uh, this comes to us from the folks over at The Verge, right? Paramount announced that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem will hit Paramount Plus tomorrow in the U.S. and Canada. That's today. The CG animated movie is now the seventh Turtles movie in a line that started with the better than it should have been 1990 live action film. Mutant Mayhem is already available to pre-order on 4K, UHD Blu-ray, standard Blu-ray, and DVD. So it just kind of came out of nowhere and they dropped it on us. And I'm actually pretty excited that they did, to be honest. Listen, when you, even though these are not the way I like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to be, I mean, this 
picture that we have up here, this is a good example of the old black and white comics with the whited out eyes, the grrr faces on them and all that kind of stuff. This was a little part in the movie that obviously pays homage to the original black and white comics. But if you can do a movie and have it be charming and fun and you can get me into the characters and enjoying the characters and liking the characters and you can make me laugh along the way. Listen, I'll tell you what, this isn't going to be in my top five favorite movies of the year or anything like that, but it really charmed me. And I don't get excited about hearing when movies are about to drop on streaming, but I got to admit, I got kind of excited when I heard that this was dropping today. So we're going to you know, have a little viewing party tonight at my place. We're going to get together. Uh, I may not be talking about Ahsoka anymore, but I'm going to watch the next episode and we're going to watch that. And then we're going to watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Ham. So I am very excited about this. Anyway, Chris, I know you are one of the people that also enjoyed this movie. Heck um, yeah. Are you, were you surprised by the way, as, as I was about all of a sudden just Paramount saying Mutant Mayhem tomorrow on, on Paramount Plus. What are the advantages of that strategy? What are the disadvantages? And are you looking forward to watching it on there? I mean, the biggest advantage is giving me such a nice work from home day. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm so excited. I, I was so pumped too, like we were talking about before the show started. I can't imagine how happy Ray is today. He must just be over the moon that he gets to watch his boys <laughs> on demand whenever he wants now. Um, I am surprised though that by this strategy, it's, it's very, very odd for them to just go and hey, you got it now. Um, but you know, Paramount has been so, so keen on making sure everything is theatrical, right? Movies belong on the big screen. Movies need to go to those exhibitors first and everything. So I think maybe they're just playing it kind of fast and loose, trying to keep it spicy on Paramount+. Plus. Hey, you probably need to subscribe to this because you never even know when we're going to drop new content. So that could be a thing they're trying out here just to see if this does really well for them on that. I love this movie, too. I just... I'm a big fan of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I hear you on the Domino Mask version. I love my pizza guys. I love my pizza bros. But Most people breathed, do. Yeah, this breathed new life into this franchise too. So even if you weren't a diehard turtle fan, this was so fun. Having that actual teenage cast recording together, working off of each other's energy is so palpable in this. And if I'm not mistaken too, they kept things pretty on a pretty tight budget. So it wasn't a huge yeah. flop financially, which is great. And Paramount's really, really good about that kind of stuff. So I'm just excited to watch this on repeat. And I'm really excited for my husband to not watch Guardians 3 on a loop for a while. <laughs> I love that movie, but it is depressing as hell. So it's going to be really nice for this to be our new comfort movie. You know, the, the other thing too, is that I, I, I think about this every time something new comes out on, on Paramount, for example, because like with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles coming it, it kind of reminds me that Paramount Plus has actually very quietly turned into a pretty nice streaming service to have in your lineup. Like if you're into the Taylor Sheridan shows, which I very, very yeah. much am, like all the Taylor Sheridan stuff is fantastic. I really love like Star Trek Strange New Worlds. You got Top Gun on there. You got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on there. I mean, they, they're just slowly kind of building it up to not a top two or three best streaming service, but they're doing a nice job at least making it into something worth having in your lineup um, if you don't already have too much other stuff. Yeah. All right. Guys, with that down, let's move on to our next topic here, shall we? And that is this. You know, we've talked a bunch about Elemental and how Elemental, the latest, you know, Pixar film, came out of the gate very depressingly slow. Like so slow 
that a lot of people thought, including me admittedly, thought this is going to be a massive flop because it just did not make any money coming out of the gate, which was really unfortunate because to me, um, Elemental was quite wonderful, actually. It, like, it was really, really good. I enjoyed it a hell of a lot. And it had charm. It was funny. It was one of the very few animated feature films that was a legit rom-com, but at the same time, it was an immigrant story. And I just thought it was wonderful. Like not top five best Pixar ever, but really, really wonderful. And I thought it deserved a lot better. Well, it the quality of the film got out there and people kept going back to see it again and they brought more people to see it. And eventually the film did way better. It closed in on $500 million, which was impressive. Well, now that success has carried over to its debut on Disney Plus because it not only broke the record for the biggest debut of the year, it absolutely shattered it. This comes to us from The Hollywood Reporter, who said the following. The slow burn life of Elemental continues. The film landed the top streaming debut for a movie on Disney Plus so far this year. The streaming service announced on Monday. That follows Elemental's box office journey, which began inauspiciously with a record worst opening for a Pixar film, only for the film to have strong legs and ultimately earn $484 million globally. Now, according to Disney, Elemental had 26.4 million views, or to put it another way, viewing time equivalent to that many complete showings of the movie. Now, here's the other neat thing about this. They did have the number one debut of the year was Little Mermaid at 16 million views in the first 20 or in the first five days. 16 million views was the record for Disney Plus this year. Elemental did 26. Point four. To put it into more context, uh, Ahsoka debuted. Uh, its episode had, I think they said, 14 million views in the first five days. And that's a very popular series with a lot of people right now. Elemental, 26.4 million. So it kind of shows us that the word got around about this movie that ultimately quality does win. And you know, Chris, I think you agree with me on this. I think Elemental was also a victim of a couple of different things. One was that really ridiculous strategy Disney employed for a couple of years of dumping all their Pixar and animated stuff on Disney Plus, which removed the idea that a Pixar film was a theatrical experience because they put Soul, Luca, Turning Red, uh, like all dumped all of it on Disney Plus. And then when they did come out of that Disney Plus era of dumping things on Disney Plus, they did Lightyear, which ended up being a disappointing film. I don't know what they were thinking about making Strange World. I mean, that was Disney animation, but so I have no idea what they're thinking of that. So I think it the slow start is kind of a reflection of all that baggage that came along with it. And then as word got around, it really picked up pace. Anyway, Chris, I know you're a big fan of this movie in particular. Are you like, I am really shocked to see because Little Mermaid had a great record breaking debut for Disney Plus of 16. This just blew that no pun intended, blew it out of the water. Uh, what do you think about these numbers and what stands out to you the most? Oh, it's so fabulous that this is doing so well. One, it proves, once again, the strategy of putting something in theaters will make it more successful once it comes to your streaming platform. That tried and true method works. So having a theatrical release first is the way to go. 
This also really shows not only did they bumble just how they were doing Disney animated films in general, Pixar animated films with that whole straight to streaming thing. It also shows how poor marketing really affects a film. Mm, yeah. The marketing strategy here was awful at the beginning. All it did was show us what we already know Pixar does well. It creates entire universes with their own rules and systems. But it didn't get into what Pixar excels at, which is there's so much more depth and humanity below that. And it wasn't until people started learning that this was a romance, that this was some kind of star-crossed lover situation, right. that it was, oh, this is something different. Because otherwise, when you're just seeing how the people exist, how they don't interact with other elements, and how we have Claw heavily featured, it kind of looks like Zootopia 2.0. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, so I feel like this just shows, too, they really need to connect to what the heart of a Pixar film is because that's what audiences connect to. I know trailers a lot of times, particularly from Disney Studios, can show too much, but this is a case where they just did not show enough of the right stuff, I think. Well, I mean, to your point, like, I had no idea. Like, one of the things that gives a real layer of depth to this film is the immigrant story of it all. Yes. I mean, that's really oh. at, the, at the heart and the foundation of it that leads to that kind of Hatfields and McCoys you know, uh, star-crossed lovers idea thing with fire and water, but they they didn't give us any of that. They showed us a little cute subway thing. It's like, oh, this is going to be a cute, charming little Pixar film. And it's like, we forgot that Pixar films are not films for kids. They are kid-friendly, but they are for everybody of every age and different experiences and stuff like that. And it was a much richer movie. You're absolutely right. than the ad campaign kind of led us to believe it was going to be. So yes. anyway, guys, what do you think about that? I mean, this record-setting kind of launch for them, blowing things like Ahsoka, a very popular Star Wars thing, Little Mermaid, which had the top spot of 16 million. Absolutely incredible. What do you attribute it to? Whatever you guys think, jump down into the comments and let us know your thoughts there. All right. With that down, guys, let's move on to this, shall we? Uh, this is really more of a response to uh, a question that I had somebody send to me. And I thought it would be interesting to make a little bit of a uh, topic about it. As you guys know, James Gunn is now the head of DC. Well, he's technically the co-head, him and his, his uh, production partner, Peter Safran, now up leading and running the DCU, or at least the upcoming DCU that launches in 2025 with their first film, Superman Legacy. And, you know, we've talked a lot on the show about the need for this movie to be great, understanding that it's going to suffer the baggage of the old DCEU, and so it's probably going to struggle a little bit at the box office, and that's fine, because it's a part of the rehabilitation of the image of DC. Very excited about it. But I had somebody write to me and ask me specifically, what are the things that I think that James Gunn philosophically needs to bring into this new DCU as we're retiring the DCEU? What does this new DCU have to do? What is James Gunn? What are the 10 things he needs to do to try to position it as well as possible for success outside of the obvious answer of make great movies, which is always my first answer, right? So I thought we would take a look at this a little bit. So let's hear my 10 things I think James Gunn needs to bring philosophically to make the DCEU succeed. First thing is find the right balance of dark and light tones. You know, Rob will often talk about the DCEU, and, and he likes a lot of the films in the DCEU. But outside of, like, say, Aquaman or whatever, Rob would often say there was a lack of joy. Like, 
Comic book movies need to have a joy to them as well. Not exclusively joy, but find the right balance. I think one of the things that Zack Snyder's DC Cinematic Universe did really well was the grittier, darker stuff, but it was sometimes guilty of not balancing it out with bringing some of that joy in. At the same time, you don't want to pull a Thor Love and Thunder and go too far to the other side. So I think one of the things he's going to have to do philosophically is find that right balance of dark and light tones. Secondly, stick to the plan or commit to the change when a change is needed. Warner Brothers historically has been guilty of being overreactionary, right? Like, oh no, something slightly went wrong. Change everything. Change our plans. Or when they would do a course correct, they would be very wishy-washy about the course correct. Look, everybody knows this, but when they weren't happy with the way Batman versus Superman went, at least a number of WB executives weren't happy with the way Batman versus Superman went. And they were very close from removing Zack Snyder before they started shooting Justice League. The problem was they couldn't make up their minds and it would, they decided it was too late to make a change and they let him go. But instead of just sticking to that, they became very wishy-washy, right? They let him go and do it, but there was a lot more interference and a lot of things that happened. And we all know that all turned out to be a big mess. I think for James Gunn, what he's got to do is stick to the plan, but no matter how good any plan is, once in a while, you might have to make a course correction. But when you make that course correction, stick to the, be committed to the course correction, right? Don't do it halfway, make the course correction and then stand firm. That's how I see it. All right. The third thing is have a clear vision with the directors before filming starts. This is something that has pretty much killed the Star Wars universe um, under Disney. And, and Disney's put out a lot of great Star Wars stuff too, but ultimately, you know, one of their reputations is that how many projects came and went without ever filming because Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm couldn't get on the same page with the directors, or at least didn't get on the same page before they announced new directors and projects. We saw it with Lord and Miller. We saw it with the Boba Fett movie that they were going to do. We saw it happen with Rogue One. We saw it happen with, I mean, we saw it happen so many times over there. And I think one of the things that James Gunn is going to have to really 100% make sure he does, learning the lesson from Lucasfilm, is when he's bringing directors in, that he 100% makes sure that he is on the same page as those directors and those directors are on the same page as him. So that way there's no surprises once filming starts. All right, number four, I think tell standalone stories outside of the cinematic universe. This is something that the DCU or the DCU is doing right now, right? Like we have Joker, we have Matt Reeves as the Batman. I want to see DC continue to do that. Make a great cinematic universe. Yes. But every once in a while, take the handcuffs off and let some talented filmmaker come in and tell a great story with one of your wonderful DC characters outside of that cinematic universe. So not every story that's going to get told has to be handcuffed to the DCU. I want to see them continue doing that. All right. Number five, I really want to see them tell personal stories. Now, it's great to make a Batman movie about how Batman saved Gotham from, you know, an alien invader. Okay. A story about Batman doing something is fine and great, and we need those movies. But I also want to see a movie about Batman. Like, one of the great things about Matt Reeves' The Batman is that, yeah, it was about Batman stopping the Riddler, but 
really at its heart, this was a story about Bruce Wayne. This was a story about Batman. Uh, one of the movies that really did this really well was Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. Yes, it was ultimately about Superman stopping the invading Kryptonians, but really at its heart, it was a movie about Kal-El. It was a movie about Superman. And I want to make sure that in telling these grander stories about big events, that they also make sure just to tell personal stories as well. I think that's really key. Uh, going to Zack Snyder's Justice League movie, by the way, staying on five for a second. I think the biggest improvement about Zack Snyder's Justice League, the HBO version of Justice League over the theatrical version, was the additional footage and scenes with Cyborg. And they really made, because those extra scenes with Cyborg really made it personal about him and understanding his heart and his soul. And I think that was the biggest improvement that made. Anyway, number six, and I'm speaking kind of at you, Marvel, have real consequences. Now, you notice I put in the brackets there, Red Wedding. Chris, I was recently going through uh, some you know YouTube rabbit holes and I got in some old reaction stuff that people did for when the Red Wedding came out. I don't know how it got on that. But seeing everybody's reactions to the Red Wedding in Game of Thrones is, if you've never seen them, guys, look it up on YouTube. It's, it's hilarious. But here's the thing. The events of the Red Wedding with five significant characters in the show just dying off like that. What it did was it made the audience like you and me have to stay on our toes because we could never, I mean, really we should have known that at the end of season one when they killed Ned Stark. So, I mean, we probably should have known it there, but it really put us on notice that in Game of Thrones, if you're a uh, fan, you cannot get comfortable. Your favorite character could die any minute now. When somebody goes into a duel, like when James Bond gets into a fight in a bar, well, we know James Bond's going to win the fight. But in Game of Thrones, if some Lannister pulls out a sword and gets into a sword fight with some Stark, you, you, your favorite character could die. And what I would love to see is James Gunn commit to having real consequences in the DCU. And listen, I, and I mean, everybody should be on the table. Don't kill Superman in the first movie. But if you got the balls to at some point kill Superman, kill Superman. Or if you want to kill Hawkman, or if you want to kill a Green Lantern, or if you want to kill a Wonder Woman, or something like that. If you can establish that your DCU is going to have real consequences in them, I think that could make the storytelling really, really compelling. All right. Next up at number seven, don't make the DCU completely Batman-centric. All right, listen, I am, I'm not one of these guys that says, oh, stop doing stuff with Batman. No, Batman is your most valuable IP. He's your most valuable character. He's probably your most popular character, and all that is for a reason. Use Batman. Make him significant. Just make sure your entire DCU doesn't completely revolve around Batman, right? Because we've got Matt Reeves as Batman. We're going to have your Batman in the DCU. we got animated Batman going on. We got, I mean, look, there's a lot of Batman out there. Just make sure that while he's one of the main figures, don't make him the figure that everything else revolves around. Number eight, please don't overexpand with dozens and dozens and dozens of characters. I understand, but John, in the comics, there are 500 characters. I, I know, I get that, but this is a cinematic universe. And I think one of the things that has hurt Marvel a little bit is that 
honestly, their superhero population is just too big now, right? There's nothing. We've gotten to the point in Marvel that there's nothing special about a superhero anymore because there's a superhero on every street corner, you know, patrolling for crime. It's taken the specialness out of it. It's taken the, you know, the, um, what, what did I used to call it? The exceptional out of the mundane. You know what I mean? And I just hope that have more than three or four characters. Yes. Just don't get into the three dozen characters thing because I, I think then it's going to overweight it a little bit. At least that's what I fear. All right. And number nine, take advantage of your rich villains. And what I mean by that is, look, don't be afraid if it's telling the right story to have Scarecrow in there and kill him off in, in one movie. That's fine. But also make sure that you are really taking advantage of some of your key great villains, that you don't just have a one and done for every villain in each movie. Like, well, this is the movie where Penguin shows up and, and now he's gone. And this is the movie where Bizarro shows up and now he's gone. Like some of them, yes, because there should be real consequences. But take advantage of some of your villains. Have them used over three, four film kind of stretches and storylines and stuff like that, or have them recurring now and again. DC just has too many great, great villains that I don't want to see them just kind of all, you know, one and done and out. All right. The last thing I'm going to mention here is remember to infuse adventure into your stories. Now, look, some people confuse action with adventure. They're two different things. Two guys fighting in a bar is action. But like go to Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's like exploring, diving into the unknown. Like this, the sense of adventure. Up is a great example of adventure, right? And I find sometimes that a lot of even really good comic book movies forget to include adventure and instead overcompensate with just too much action. Have that sense of adventure in these movies as well. And I think if they do that. So again, my, my 10 things that I think James Gunn needs to do, find the right balance of light and dark, stick to the plan or be fully committed when you need to do a course correction, have a clear vision with the directors before filming starts, tell standalone stories outside of the cinematic universe, tell personal stories, have real consequences, don't make the DCU completely Batman-centric. Don't overexpand with too many characters. Take advantage of the rich villains and remember to use adventure. So, Chris, that's my big rundown. I think I've at least philosophically the things I need James Gunn and Peter Safran to bring to this new DCU. Do any of those stand out to you? Do you have some that maybe I, I didn't include? What are some of the big ones to you that think they need to do to make this new DCU in 2025 really succeed? Man, the Elseworlds kind of idea here of doing self-contained yeah. stories, that is, I think, very, very key to them being successful. Because as we've seen with Marvel, we get this very tangled web that when it doesn't all fit together in a beautiful Dickensian fashion where everyone knows each other and it makes sense, we as the audience go, wait, what? What's the point of this one then? Right. We think that we're putting this puzzle piece together and if it doesn't fit, we get angry about it. And that's something that we as fans need to work on, myself included. But that's the expectation that's been set, right? I totally agree on making these personal stories, too, because a lot of times what I feel DC has kind of lacked when it's come to the screen and what's so rich on their pages is the personal backgrounds here. Right. One of the reasons why the Batman film worked so well is because it took that kind of Batman hush ideology of destroying Bruce Wayne and making it a personal fight. That's why stories like, you know, Superman birthright are so great by Mark Wade of just really exploring who these characters are. Um, I think too, 
I mean, we've talked about this ad nauseum, but really with Superman, you have to make him so other. You know, you have yeah. to focus on that struggle and that difficulty with dealing with your own strength. And and surprisingly, two of the best things that have done that are Superman and Lois and my adventures with Superman. <laughs> like they're they're great. They're so well done. And it's in shocking ways of, oh, my gosh, the Superman magical girl anime handles Superman really well. OK, cool. So I think that's one of the things here is we've we've really relied on the power aspect yeah. Of superheroes. And I think we got to go back to that idea of what Captain America did really well, what, you know, Spider-Verse does really well of the hero is the person, sans the powers. The powers are just yes. icing. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, to the, to the Superman point as well, I think another film, Superman Project, they did a good job of, because again, with Superman, and that's what they're starting off with, Superman Legacies, their first film out of the gate. With Superman, it's always difficult because how do you tell a compelling story about the God Man, right? Yeah. Brandon Routh's Superman Returns. It, it gets, uh, it's divisive. There are people who have different feelings about it for many different reasons. I think there's great things about it. There's some things it did weak. I thought it was a very good movie, just not a very good comic movie. But one of the things they did great in that movie was they showed Superman's struggle. But his struggle, the, the Brandon Routh Superman struggle was what is my place in this world? He yes. still feels alien. He he feels so outside that he doesn't even know how to relate to the woman he loves. He doesn't know how to relate to the rest of humanity. He still doesn't know his place. There's a great scene in Superman Returns where he's literally just floating around in outer space, listening, yes, but they, they do such a good job of showing the sorrow that's in his heart about the fact that he doesn't feel like he belongs. And it's like, that's going to be key for them. I'm glad you brought that up, that they're going to have to find a way for Superman to what does he struggle with? And it can't just be kryptonite. Exactly. And that's going to be their big challenge. Anyway, guys, the question for you is, what do you think are some of the key things philosophically that James Gunn and Peter Safran are going to have to bring into this brand new DCU to ensure that it's successful? We want to know what you guys think. All right, guys, listen, we still got to talk about the most anticipated shows coming up in the fall of 2023. Now, there's a whole bunch of brand new ones. We're going to quickly touch on 33 of them. So hang in there. Also, the Netflix Daredevil showrunner is kind of blasting the Disney Plus reboot. We're going to talk about why. But before we do all that, we're going to take a second and hear from a couple of sponsors of today's episode of the John Campus Show podcast, our friends at Rocket Money and my favorite oral health provider, Quip. Guys, we want to take a second to thank a sponsor of today's video, Rocket Money. Did you know that the average person has around 12 paid subscriptions and they might not even remember to subscribing to half of those? If you have no idea just how much you're spending each month, you need Rocket Money. It's this great app that tracks all of your expenses so you know exactly where your money is going. I recently just found out that over 80% of people have subscriptions that they've completely forgotten about. Seriously, think about how many free trials you subscribe to that you just probably never canceled. And that's why I'm such a big fan of Rocket Money, because I was one of those people. When I signed up to Rocket Money, I was stunned to find out that a gym I had belonged to in another city I lived in, I had still been paying my dues to for over two years. Also, that music subscription service I use, yeah, I forgot I was subscribed to two other ones. That's where Rocket Money comes in because Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. With over 3 million users and counting, Rocket Money customers have saved on average of $720 a year. So stop wasting money on things 
you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash campia. That's rocketmoney.com slash campia. Rocketmoney.com slash campia. Guys, we want to take a second to thank a sponsor of this video, Quip. Guys, you know that good health starts with good habits and Quip makes it easy by delivering all the oral care essentials that you need to care for your mouth. For example, their incredible electric toothbrush. Guys, I've been using electric toothbrushes for years and this is easily the best one I've ever owned. Time sonic vibrations with 30 second pulses to guide a dentist recommended two minute clean. A lightweight and sleek design for adults and kids with no wires or bulky charger to weigh you down. Reusable handles in a range of sleek metal hues as well as bright plastic colors sure to make a pop on your bathroom counter. Skip the battery and snap into healthy habits with the new rechargeable electric toothbrush. All the features of the original Quip plus one magnetic charge powers up to three months of brushing. In addition to brush heads, Quip also delivers fresh floss, toothpaste, mouthwash, and gum refills every three months from just $7. So if you go to getquip.com campia right now, you'll get 20% off any electric toothbrush, mint and gum dispenser, or water flosser. That's your 20% off any electric toothbrush, mint and gum dispenser, water flosser at getquip.com slash campia. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash campia. Quip, the good habits company. And thank you to our friends at Rocket Money and Quip for sponsoring this episode of the John Campia Show podcast. All right, guys, with that down, let's move on to this, shall we? This is really interesting. Now, okay, we're heading into fall and the TV season, and there's a whole bunch of of new shows coming, a whole ton of them. So what I thought is I would take this article that we have here from Variety. Variety put out a really interesting article with what they call the 33 most anticipated brand new shows coming in the fall of 2023. So I'm going to go down through them quickly. Uh, and then Chris, see if you can make a mental note of the ones that really stand out to you. And uh, we'll go from there. All right, let's get things rolling here. And they're starting off with Lakeith Stainfield's The Changeling. Not to be mistaken of, with the, the classic movie, but The Changeling. It describes it as, uh, based on Victor Laval's best-selling book of the same name, The Changeling is billed as a fairy tale for grown-ups, including horror, parenthood stories, and a perilous odyssey through a New York City you didn't know existed. Of course, again, with Lakeith in there from being everything from you know, uh, Knives Out, which I thought he was great in, in a supporting role. Obviously his role in Atlanta. He was really quite charming in the complete Disney flop, uh, Haunted Mansion, but I really like him a lot. So the changeling is one thing to keep your eyes on. All right, next up, it's already started, but The Walking Dead, Daryl Dixon, it's described as in the latest Walking Dead spinoff, uh, which once featured Carol, Carol, but now does not. Daryl circles to find out how he arrived in France and why he's here, hoping to find a way back home. Now, it's got Norman Reedus in it. I love Norman Reedus, but I'm not going to lie. I, I tapped out of everything Walking Dead like five years ago. Um, I liked Walking Dead for what it was for a good number of years, but I eventually tapped out of it. And I, I'd be lying to you if I said I was interested in this, but hey, it's out there now. All right. We also got one that Ray loves, The Swarm. And it's described as, per the official description, after years of unrestrained pollution and relentless climate change, a mysterious force of the deep starts using the creatures of the ocean as hostile hosts and declares war on humanity. So uh, Ray's been really excited about this. It sounds a little bit like that. What's that M. Night Shyamalan movie where the trees come to life? The Mist? No, no. no. That's, what was that? What was? Oh, now I can't remember the name of it. The, hap the Happening? 
I think it was The Happening. <gasps> the Happening. Yeah, with yeah. Mark Wahlberg. It sounds a little bit like that, but instead of trees, they're using whales to go around and kill people. Eh, Ray's enjoying it. It just started on September 12th. All right. This one sounds interesting, called The Other Black Girl. And this one is described as uh, the drama based on Zakia Dahlia Harris's novel follows editorial assistant Nella, the only young black woman at her company, who finds comfort when that finally changes. However, upon meeting Hazel, she quickly realized something sinister is going on at the company. What's got me interested about this is the combination of the description with the fact that it's Hulu. Hulu puts out some really good original stuff, and I think this one sounds pretty interesting. Next up, I got to admit, I'm very, very interested in this, is Wrestlers. This is a docuseries. Now, from the team behind Cheer and The Last Chance You, this seven-part docuseries follows the members of of Ohio Valley Wrestling in Louisville, Kentucky. The wrestling gym that Brock Lesnar, The Miz, John Cena, Dave Bautista, and Randy Orton all trained at. Acclaimed wrestler Al Snow now struggles to keep the doors of the gym open and has to sell a majority of the stake to businessmen who give him the summer to turn things around and somehow save the gym. This is real drama, Chris. This is real drama. And uh, I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be on Netflix. This one's going to be on Netflix. All right. Next up, Buddy Games. Uh, In the new competition series, so reality-based show, in a new competition series based on Josh Duhamel's own childhood tradition, six teams of long-term friends relive their glory days and compete in an assortment of absurd physical and mental challenges in the outdoors while bunking together in the same house. So it's got a little bit of a feel of Big Brother, a little bit of that. Again, we're going to see a lot of shows coming out soon that are don't use writers <laughs> that are yeah. quote unquote real quote unquote reality based things. Uh, I've seen some commercials from this. I'm I'd be lying to you if I said I was interested. This one's coming out on CBS. That sounds like my personal nightmare. I have to be outdoors and play games and bunk with people. No, thank you. <laughs> it's like everything that Chris does not want to do. Everything I hate. All right, this one sounds kind of interesting. It's called Wilderness. And while Liv and Will appear to have a glamorous, solid marriage and life in New York, that all changes when she finds out that he's having an affair. He convinces her to take her dream road trip, trying to make amends. She agrees, seeing it it as a very different prospect, a landscape where accidents can happen all the time and the perfect place to get revenge. This actually sounds pretty good to me. It's coming out on Amazon Prime. I like the description of it. Uh, jilted lovers movies and stories always kind of get me. I don't know why. Then we got an old Australian show that's been saved and is coming to North America now called Neighbors. Uh, The Australian soap opera was canceled in 2022 after airing more than three decades, having launched the careers of Margot Robbie, Russell Crowe, the Hemsworth brothers, among others. Robbie even came back for what was thought to be the series finale. Later that year, though, Amazon Freebie rescued the soap, and the revival will pick up two years after that 2022 finale. The show will once again focus on the lives, loves, and challenges of the residents of Ramsey Street in... Aaronsboro, Australia, a fictional suburb of Melbourne. Uh, this is going to be, as it's said in there, on Amazon Freebie. I have, I've always heard of this show with because of all the careers it launched. I don't have any interest in this myself. Have you seen the clip that's going around social of Margot and Liam seeing? No, I didn't know oh they were in the gosh. show at the same time. They were in the show at the same time. It's this ridiculous scene with the most stilted dialogue where Margot is just like, "I just know you want to sleep with her," and he's like. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's great. That is the ultimate response every guy should have when their girlfriend says, I know you want to sleep with her. Mm -hmm. All right. Next up, we got a show called Supermodels, which is a fans of the David Fincher directed George Michael video for Freedom. 90 Take Note. The four part series explains how Naomi Campbell, Cindy Crawford, Linda Evangelista and Christy Turlington uh, dominated the elite modeling world while illuminating a bond that single-handedly shifted the power dynamic of an entire industry. The doc also features interviews with acclaimed designers and photographers. This one is coming to Apple TV plus and listen, I don't give a crap about modeling or anything like that, but this sounds interesting to me. I'm probably going to check this out. All right. Then of course, We got The Continental from the world of John Wick. Of course, the first trailers have dropped for this thing. Everybody's really excited about it. Uh, The three-part streaming prequel series, which migrated from Stars to Peacock, explores the origin behind the iconic hotel for Assassin's centerpiece of the John Wick universe through the eyes and actions of a young Winston Scott, and he's dragged into the hellscape of 1970s New York City to face a past he thought he had left behind. Of course, this is coming out on Peacock. Everybody's excited about this, and I hope it's as good as the uh, trailers make it look up to be. All right, then we got a show called Still Up. The eight-episode romantic comedy is set in the after-hours world of insomniacs Danny and Lisa, who have no secrets except their feelings for each other. Uh, um, this one's coming out on Apple TV+. Plus. Honestly, the fact that it's Apple TV+, Plus is the only reason I have any interest in this. Apple TV's got a pretty impressive uh, batting average right now, so maybe I'll check this one out. Then there's one I've seen a lot of commercials for, especially during football, uh, Crapopolis. This Dan Harmon-produced animated series, first ordered by Fox in June of 2020, is set in Crepopolis in the mythical ancient Greece. The show tells the story of humans, gods, and monsters who are trying to run the city while attempting to get along. The characters include the mortal son of a goddess who is the narcissistic king of Crepopolis, the powerful goddess of (laughs) self-destruction, the goddess of self-destruction. Okay, I like that. And the Minotaur, half centaur, half manticore, the self-described life of the orgy. Uh, The show has already been renewed through season three. Now, this is a Dan Harmon produced show. It's coming out on Fox. I don't know how, look, all I know is that they must be really big on this to before it even debuts. It comes out on the 24th of this month that they've already renewed it all the way through season three. That's, I'm not going to lie to you. The trailers have not looked good to me, but all right. This one I'm interested in. It's called The Irrational. It's a terrible title, but The Irrational. And NBC appears to be the only broadcast network that stockpiled a few of its scripted series in anticipation of the strike. And The Irrational is the first to premiere. It filmed seven of its 10 seasons. It's seven. Let me try this again. It filmed seven of its... 10 season, one episodes. Based on Dan Arley's book, Predictably Irrational, the show follows the world-renowned professor and behavioral scientist Alex Mercer as he uses his unique, unconventional skills to take on high-stakes government cases. Now, this has got Jesse L. Martin in it, who, of course, for those of you who watch CW's show, he was, of course, Flash's adopted dad uh, in that show for a whole bunch of years. I remember him in Rent. Uh, but I was really excited to see him in this and I like these crime procedurals. So I'm going to be interested in this. It's on NBC starts on the 25th. Then we got something called love in Fairhope. 
Uh, it's a docuseries that meets rom-com. Love and Fairhope follows five generations of women in the small town of Fairhope, Alabama. Per the log line, in this community, everyone knows everyone else's business, but no one knows where hopelessly romantic dreams, passions, and inspiration will take them all. Uh, puke. It's got Reese Witherspoon, who's an executive producer on it, but I don't think she's in the show. It's going to debut on Hulu. All right, I'm going to start going through a little faster with these because we still got a bunch to go. The Golden Bachelor, it's The Bachelor, but with a 71-year-old rich dude. Um, I've Sign never watched anything Bachelor-related, so I have no interest in this. Gen V, the spinoff of The, Vo the Boys, uh, is coming out on Amazon Prime Video. It launches in, I think, 10 days. 10 days from now, The Boys spinoff Gen V starts. Really looking forward to that. Uh, we got found, which is a public relations specialist in her team focused on the fact that more than 600,000 people, half of whom are people of color, are reported missing in the U.S. per year. However, the everyday hero is holding on to a secret of her own. This drama was supposed to be a mid-series series for NBC, but the network pushed it to this fall schedule so it could have original scripted content. Uh, this one sounds interesting coming out on NBC on October 3rd. Then we got something called The Spencer Sisters and Sullivan's Crossing. This is more Canadian television from the Canadian television network, CTV. A bunch of Canadian television has been successfully migrating over to the States lately. Things like um, uh, Kim's Convenience, things like, uh, why Shit's am I freezing Creek. on the name with Eugene Levy? I love the show. Shit's Creek. Shit's Creek, yeah. Shows like Shit's Creek and others. They're hoping Spencer Sisters and Sullivan's Crossings can be the next one for that. I've never actually heard of either of them. The Fall of the House of Usher is one that's getting a lot of attention right now. They just dropped their first trailer this week on there. Uh, you got Luke Skywalker in it, which is kind of interesting. Based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe, the ruthless Usher siblings who have built a pharmaceutical empire uncover the family secrets when heirs begin dying at the hands of a mysterious woman from their past. This limited series is likely the last Netflix project for Mike Flanagan, the Haunting of House Hill creator, since he's since moved on with his company over to a new deal at Amazon. I saw the trailer. Did you see the trailer for? I I did, and someone's eye is hanging out of their face. Yeah, there's eye violence. Yeah, I I knew when I saw that it wouldn't be good. I'm not gonna lie to you. I love the cast in this thing. Uh, Bruce Greenwood's in it. Uh, again, Mark Hamill is in it, which is really interesting. Um, it's got a really good stack cast. I yeah. I didn't like the trailer though myself. I didn't think it looked all that good. But it's from Mike I, Flanagan, so maybe I might check it out. Yeah, he has a pretty good track record. Um, all right. Then we've got something called the house of villains. Uh, this looks like a reality show with some C level celebrities and stuff like that. It's going to be on E so you can ignore it. Frasier is coming back and oddly look night court came back recently and it's awful. Like really, really bad. Oh, it's really bad. Oh my, I, I loved the original night court. The new one was terrible. I had the same fears for Frasier. But I'll tell you what, I've been hearing from some people it's actually quite good. So I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for that. Uh, next up, we got Lessons in Chemistry. This is set in the early 1950s. This drama follows hopeful scientists who accepts a job hosting and uh, hosting a cooking show after being fired from the lab. She then sets out to teach a nation of overlooked housewives and the men who are suddenly listening a lot more than recipes. Based on Bonnie Gromis's best-selling 2022 novel of the same name. I don't know anything about it, but again, it's an Apple TV Plus show coming out in mid-October. I'll probably give it a shot just because it's an Apple TV Plus. All right. Then we've got Living for the Dead. Uh, the creators of Queer Eye introduced five fabulous queer ghost hunters. 
Wow, if that doesn't sound like a modern day concept, I don't know what else does. Uh, five fabulous queer ghost hunters crisis across the country, helping the living by healing the dead. The group explore infamous haunted locations and push past boundaries to accept both the living and the dead. Living for the dead sounds like a title from 30 Rock, but uh, let's but let us at this gay ghost hunters reality show. It's got uh, Kristen Stewart's going to be the narrator, so it's a reality based thing. <laughs> ghost hunting. Meets Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Okay, sure. Uh, coming out on Hulu. Ghost hunting. All right. Um, then you got this thing called Fellow Travelers. This one's going to be on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, it looks like it's a drama. They, they begin, a, okay, they say, based on Thomas Milani's novel, this is an epic love story and thriller highlighting the lives of two men who meet in McCarthy-era Washington. They begin a romance just as Joseph McCarthy and Roy Kahn declare war on subversive and sexual deviance, initiating one of the darkest periods of the 20th century American history. Look, I'm really actually into the, the history stuff and looking at stuff behind the scenes and history and tell these stories. So I'm into it. Sure, Paramount Plus, why not? Uh, Love Island Games. This sounds like another reality show. Reality one. Yeah. Uh, the Love Island spinoff series features fan favorite Islanders from US, UK, and Australia as they arrive for a second shot at love and an all new competition. The dramatic series, dramatic, uh, will stream six days <laughs> a week on Peacock. Chris, I got to ask you have you ever watched an episode of Love Island? I have never watched Love Island. I am so proud I've of you. To. Is I, I listen to <laughs> this is so dorky. It's the best though. I listened to a improvised musical podcast called Off Book. That's amazing, and they did an episode about Love Island. <laughs> I I'm I proud to say I've never watched this. I, yeah. I have no intention to start now. But hey, no. different strokes for different po folks. There are people out there that like this stuff, and maybe sure. they'll be excited about this. All right. All the Light We Cannot See. Uh, this is a four-part limited series tells the story of a blind French girl and her father who, per the Netflix logline, flee German-occupied Paris with legendary diamond to keep it from falling into the hands of the Nazis. Along the way, they find surprise connections in people, hope, and faith. Based on Anthony Doerr's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel from 2017. This sounds great to me, actually. Um... So it's going to be on Netflix November 2nd. I love these types of stories. Sign me up for this one. Four-parter is interesting, too. You don't often see Netflix do stuff like that. No. Then we've got something called The Buccaneers. It looks like another period piece. The eight-episode drama inspired by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Edith Wharton's unfinished final novel of the same name tells the story of a group of fun-loving American girls in 1870s London set to find a husband and, in turn, kicking off an Anglo-American culture clash in the land of the stiff upper lip is infiltrated by a refreshing disregard for centuries of tradition. Heh. <sighs> Nah. <laughs> eh. uh, Imogen Waterhouse is in it. That's interesting. Apple TV Plus, November 8th. Uh, then we've got another new show coming called Murder at the End of the World. Uh, in this mystery series, a reclusive billionaire invites a Gen Z amateur sleuth and tech-savvy hacker, along with eight other guests, to take part in a retreat at a remote location. That well, sounds like the beginning of most 1960s horror things. Uh, when one guest is found dead, the young detective skills are put to the test. I don't know. This kind of sounds like a knives out kind of ripoff or yeah. something like that. Anyway, this is going to be on FX. We'll stream on Hulu. Comes out November 14th. 
Uh, then I know a lot of people have been excited about this. Scott Pilgrim takes off. The Hell 2010 yes. movie Scott Pilgrim vs. the World did not do well at the box office, but has since become a cult classic. In this eight-episode animated series featuring the original cast and based on Brian Lee O'Malley's graphic novels that led to the film, Scott Pilgrim must defeat the evil exes of the girl of his dream. Do you know much about I know you mentioned this. I think you were the first person to mention this one to me. Is this yeah. something you're looking forward to? I'm so excited about this. I love these comics. I loved that movie. Oh, bring it on. I'm so pumped. And uh, it's the original cast. It's all the original yeah, cast. Yeah, it's all the original voice guys, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. All right. Next up, we got something called Bookie. Uh, I Just that image makes me interested. Chuck Lorre's first show for Max and his first and only streaming show since the uh, Kaminsky Method, which was a big hit for them for Netflix. Mm -hmm. In this buddy comedy, a longtime bookie and his partner in crime struggled to survive amid the impending legalization of sports gambling in Los Angeles. I love it already. This is going to be on Max. Yeah, what happens to sports bookies once sports betting becomes legal? I love the idea. I've not even heard of this show, but I'm so down. It's going to be in Max in November. All right, then this is what we've been talking a lot about. Monarch, Legacy of Monsters. It's the new Godzilla show that's going to be on Apple. Uh, this sci-fi drama... Uh, is in partnership with Legendary and is from the same cinematic universe as Godzilla, Kong Skull Island, Kong King of the Monsters, and Godzilla vs. Kong, and the upcoming sequel, Kong x Godzilla, uh, The New Empire. Taking place after after the Godzilla and the Titans battle confirm monsters are real, the show tracks two siblings following in their father's footsteps. Well, we've talked about this on the show before, what the synopsis of the show is. Listen, I got to tell you, I thought the trailer for this was great. I'm very excited about it. We'll see how it turns out. It is scheduled to come out in November on Apple TV+. Then we've got Far Away Downs. The six-episode limited series is a reimagining of Baz Luhrmann's 2008 film Australia, comprised of footage captured for the movie and an expanded version of the story with a new ending. This is with Nicole Kidman, Hugh Jackman. So really, they're taking the movie, adding additional footage, and then editing it and reimagining it as a series? I don't know about that. I don't know about that either. I, but as you would say, for why? Yeah, it's a big for why. Huh. Anyway, uh, apparently this is going to be a Fox. No, it's going to be on Hulu. Okay. Uh, in November. And yeah, so that's uh, all of them, Chris, Damn. that we have there. I mean, obviously some of the big ones. We've got uh, the Godzilla one, very excited oh, about. Yeah. The so Scott excited. Pilgrim one is one a lot of people are excited about. Uh, the John Wick one, a lot of people are excited about that. Some of those dramas sounded pretty, especially the period piece one. Apple Plus has a couple of interesting looking ones. Any one of those like really stand out to you that you're excited about? Man, what you just talked about, I'm very, very here for. Um, I am very excited about The Changeling. First of all, Apple TV, Lakeith, Grown Up Fairy Tale, Say Less. Like, I'm here for it. I'm excited about it. I love everything they put forward. Um, the other black girl looks like Severance meets Sorry to Bother You, plus has Eric McCormick. So I'm very interested in that because it looks very mysterious and like something nefarious is going on there. You know what else it sounds like a little bit? Remember Red Eye with Rachel yes. McAdams? Which the trailers made it look like it was a supernatural horror movie. It is not. No. But so it doesn't remind me of the ad campaign, but it actually... The other black girl sounds a little bit like the tone and feel that maybe Red Eye had a little bit where something that you think is good that comes in your life isn't so good. That sounds interesting to me. 
Yeah, I'm really interested in that one. And then, yeah, the the Jesse L. Martin uh, procedural. You know me. I love murder. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. As Let's long as go. they don't touch the eyes. As long as they don't touch eyes, they can do anything else. Murder is great. It's so fun. All right. With that down, guys, let's move on to this, shall we? Now, there was a lot of excitement got generated when Marvel announced that they were bringing back Daredevil. Daredevil, of course, is one of the greatest superhero television shows. I don't think it's the greatest, but it's right up there. I mean, it's fantastic. I loved all three seasons. Charlie Cox, Vincent D'Onofrio was born to play Kingpin. Loved it. Now, a lot of people then started getting a little nervous when it started becoming apparent that this is not actually the exact same Daredevil. It's, it's not Daredevil season four. It's new iterations. We got some recastings done. Some characters that were there in the original show are not going to be here. Um, all that kind of stuff. And it's, But, you know, I think there's still a feeling of excitement. I still think there's a general feeling of excitement about the show. And the fact that it's going to be like 18 episodes, which... I mean, completely bucks the trend of what Disney Plus has been doing on their stuff with, with crappy six-episode seasons and whatever. So that's good. However, not everybody loves what they've been hearing coming out of, you know, Disney and the whole return and the way it's returning. Because there are some people, including Stephen DeKnight, who was the showrunner of season one of Daredevil on Netflix. And by the way, he's also the showrunner of one of my top three all-time favorite shows, Spartacus, which also starred Aaron Cummings, was in that. I love Stephen tonight. I, I think he's great. But crying kind of foul and talking a little bit about why, instead of doing a proper like Daredevil season four and just taking that show and continuing it, he thinks there's ulterior motives for what they're doing. This comes to us from the folks over the direct. Now, somebody got on um, the service formerly known as Twitter and wrote this. And not only did they cancel Daredevil once crew got full raises and holiday slash vacation pay, the Disney Plus reboot is back to the season one IATSE contract terms. It is a effing scam. I wonder if Stephen DeKnight knows that. To which Stephen DeKnight actually responded and said, it is an old Disney scam where they rename a series to reset contract terms back to first season. Needs to be addressed by all the guilds, unions, and crushed. All right. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I have a lot of insight into how this particular thing works. But basically what's being suggested here, and Chris, maybe you can speak more directly to this, is the fact that there is certain rules that shows follow in contract terms in the first three seasons under the IATSE contract. Under the first three seasons, crew and all that kind of stuff for these shows gets paid a certain amount that's more limited. And they get limited benefits and stuff like that for the first three seasons. But once a show goes into a fourth season, salaries go up, benefits increase, all that kind of stuff. And what Stephen DeKnight is kind of suggesting here, Chris, is that one of the reasons that they're still bringing over Charlie Cox, still bringing over Vincent D'Onofrio, but they're changing it and making it a new show, he says their motivation is strictly because they don't want to pay IATSE members fourth season wages. They don't want to pay IATSE crew members fourth season benefits. They get to go back and reset it to season one of the contract. Now, 
I don't know if I buy it because again, I like I thought immediately when they were going to bring Daredevil over, I immediately thought with no thought about the IATSE contracts is they're going to want to make this their own. They're going to kind of want to reshape this and make it a Daredevil that fits more into the MCU. They're going to make it their own thing. It's not going to be Daredevil season four. But I also didn't know about those other things and how costly that could be. You read the comments here. How significant are like the wage increases, benefit increases, if they had done this as a season four? And do you think that was part of their motivation for just kind of starting from square one again? You know, it's honestly hard to say because Daredevil was initially canceled about three years ago, um, three or four years ago now. And they didn't, I don't think at that time, have this plan of rebooting and bringing Daredevil into the MCU. Right. That being said, this is something that's been brought up a few times before with other Disney projects, too. Um, Joey Bragg, who's a child actor, he was on shows like Live and Maddie and stuff like that on Disney Channel. He talked about how this was just something that Disney has constantly done. And it's why popular shows in the early aughts, like, you know, a Lizzie McGuire or a That's So Raven or The Sweet Life, they would get canceled or they would end and have a new version of it pop up where those are counted as new seasons, basically because for those first three seasons, there's this loophole of being paid an 88% minimum or so. So 88% of what the minimums are. And then you would increase those once you get to that fourth season. And by doing this kind of soft reboot or pseudo cancellation, you then start from scratch and continue wow. paying those minimums. So it is a pretty nefarious thing to do. Do I think that's what's happening with Daredevil? I'm honestly not sure because of that gap and because of this plan. Now, if it had been they canceled on Netflix and immediately started having Daredevil born again. Right. Then I would have been absolutely that is 100 percent what they're doing. That timeline discrepancy is the only thing that I'm kind of clinging to of. I think Disney does that, but I don't think Disney did it here. Let me ask you this question, because I, I, and this is not a rhetorical question. Okay. Let's pretend for a moment that the IATSE contract stuff, you know, that you'd have to pay these crew members and all these. Let's say that wasn't a factor and that didn't exist. My initial thought was that once Disney launches their version of Daredevil, it was going to be a new Daredevil. Like it was going to be a new version, a new iteration, even with Charlie Cox still playing the role. Do you did you think that, or did you think that, you know, if Disney ever re picks it up? they're just going to keep rolling with Daredevil season four. I know. How do you think they would have done it if the IATSE thing was not an issue here? I'm honestly not sure. You know, for the longest time, I was holding out hope that so many of the Daredevil players were going to return because we have Charlie, because we have Vincent. And I really love that Foggy. I think right, he's yeah. just so wonderful. And for people um, who haven't heard... Foggy is not returning uh, to the show. At least the actor who played Foggy in Netflix is not returning. And the uh, Karen, was that the character? Karen is not returning to the show and the actress is not returning to the show either. Yeah. So, and Disney from the jump was saying it was going to be a different version, a lighter version. And that's not something that we should, I hope, get upset about. It's just that Netflix version was very dark. You know, that scene with Kingpin and the car door, even though we don't see anything, is harrowing. That is such a disturbing moment. And I don't know if that kind of energy is going to exist on Disney Plus. Maybe it will. Moon Knight got pretty gnarly in some parts. But I think that 
since Netflix really was never made part of the MCU officially, those right. shows, there were just references like The Green Guy, The Thing in New York, that sort of thing. I don't know if there ever was that plan to bring those characters into the MCU fold. And I think Disney is doing a lot of kind of cafeteria service right now. We like a little bit of this, but I'm going to pass on that. I like a little bit of this, but I'll put this on my plate instead. And I think that's really what they've been doing with these kind of Netflix properties. Oh, we really like Charlie, but maybe some of the other things didn't fire for us. Mm. I know you're not, you're in SAG, you're not in IATSE, but yeah. would you have any sort of a guess? IATSE people have skills. <laughs> I can't build anything. <laughs> I, Because I, I have no concept here. Like what kind of price tag could we be talking about? Like if what what would be the difference between what Disney would have to pay out with this being a new show versus if they said this is Daredevil season four? Because you mentioned like it was 88 percent of pay scale for Aotsi. We're not talking about the actors. We're not pay, talking about the million dollar paid actors. We're talking about crew. Yeah. How if you had to take a random guess how big of a price difference it's going to be for Disney for one season of this new Daredevil as a new show versus it being a fourth season show, what would you guess that dollar value might be around? It's hard to say because if that 88% number is correct, right, we're then adding a minimum of 12% onto everybody. For the, not not the actors, though, not the yeah. directors. Everyone in IATSE. Right. Right. So you are looking at this 12% increase. What that actually is, I am not educated enough to know what crew members make. Certainly not enough. Certainly not enough for what they do and how much hard work they do. Because um, crew members, you got to remember too, when we talk about actors being like, oh, I had to do overtime for a 12-hour day. The crew is there for so much longer. Yeah. And it is usually very physical labor. And they're also there to make sure we're safe, things look good, all that good stuff. Um, so I'm not sure what that number would be. But I'm, I'm guessing for a company like Disney that... Well, so family friendly and so lovely, and I've worked for them before, and I hope to work for them again. Is known for being pretty strict and and brutal with making those pay cuts where they can. So I'm guessing that whatever that twelve percent number is, it's enough to make the executives go, "Oh no, 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 that can't be budgeted in here. We got to use that for something else." See, because on the surface, I don't think this IATSE thing has anything to do with it. But if some accountant came to me and said, Oh yeah, the difference between them making this a new show and a season four is about $150 million a year. I would then become suspicious. <laughs> I think yeah. at that point I would have to become, but you raise a really good point too about the fact that it's not like the end of the Netflix thing and the next day Kevin Feige said, yeah. Daredevil's coming home to the MCU. It was like years in between the cancellation ones, but I don't know. It's a really interesting situation. It's really interesting to see Stephen tonight's the old showrunner's comments on that. And guys, yeah. what do you think? Do you think this has a big part of it? Do you think it had nothing to do with it? Whatever you guys think, let us know down in the comments below. All right, guys, listen, we are now going to go over and start taking some questions from our YouTube channel members. But before we do, we're going to take another moment here and thank another sponsor of today's episode of the John Campus Show podcast, my mobile service provider, and they should be yours, Mint Mobile. Guys, we want to take a second to thank a sponsor of today's video, 
Mint Mobile. Signing your life away to a big wireless provider is kind of like being trapped on a roller coaster from hell. Sure, it looks like fun at first. They probably even threw in a free phone. But now you can't get off. Month after month of insane bills and unexpected thrills. Like overages and surprise fees. If that sounds like your current big wireless plan, it's time to get off the ride with Mint Mobile. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are just $15 a month. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for just $15 a month. You guys know before I came to Mint Mobile, I was paying triple what I am paying now on the standard big wireless plan, and I will never go back. All plans come with unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get your new unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped right to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com campia. That's mintmobile.com dot com slash campia cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash campia and thank you to our friends at mint mobile for sponsoring this and every episode of the john campia show podcast all right guys that down let's get over to the questions coming from our youtube channel members shall we and we're going to start off here with uh chip crisper who writes Hey, John and crew, since we're a bit past the halfway point of the year, I was wondering, what are your top five films of the year so far? Thanks and bring on the filthy. Well, I don't like to put together lists off the top of my head, but I will tell you my favorite film of the year, Chris, is still Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Oh, yeah. Um, And then I'm not ready to put them in order yet, but the others would probably be Oppenheimer, Air, and Dumb Money would have to be on my list right now as well. I, I'd have to sit down and go through the others, but those are amazing. Uh, Across the Spider-Verse, still my number one. Uh, Oppenheimer, Air, and Dumb Money are going to have to be up there too. It's still a lot of great films to come. Do you have some favorites of the year so far? Oh, man. I mean, definitely Spider-Verse. Um, loved Barbie. Loved Barbie and I loved Oppenheimer. What a great double feature that was. Um, and I still have to see Dumb Money. I- haven't seen it. Instead, I'm seeing Barbie again in 4DX for some reason. <laughs> it's, I cannot wait for you to see Dumb Money. It's so good. I can't wait to go back and watch it again, to be honest. All right. Next up, we got uh, Zios who writes, Hey, Campy Crew, a couple of friends and I went to LA over the weekend. Nice. And I had the chance to go to the Chinese Theater and the Star Walk. Truly a wonderful experience for a cinema fan. Also went to Universal Studios Hogshead. I think you probably meant Hogsmeade. Uh, Really pulled you into that world. What's next to check out if I ever go back? Um, I mean, look, there's so many things in LA. Like, Chris, people always ask, what should I do now? Like, look, there's so much things to do in LA. Uh, if you're an outdoorsy person, hike up to the Hollywood sign. That That's pretty cool. Uh, go visit Santa Monica. Uh, go visit the Santa Monica Pier. Uh, that's actually a pretty fun thing to do. And uh, see if you can get a studio tour, either over yeah. at Warner Brothers or something like that. Do you have any things that you tell people who are coming to visit LA, things they get they need to do? Oh, to check the Cinespia or Street Food Cinema uh, mm. schedules. Because Cinespia is so fun where you go and see a movie in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Like that is a really, really good time. All right. Uh, next up, we've got Joe Joey Hawkins writes, Hey, can't be a crew in regards to streaming residuals. Could the licensing fees that Amazon and Netflix pay for outside library content suits on Netflix, for example, be used to pay residuals as a center ground? Thanks and bring on the filthy. I mean, any source of revenue could be used as a, a piece of a residuals system. I don't think they should. Uh, but it is one of the options. I mean, this is this is the thing. 
the a lot of people still talk about residuals like the way they were in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, right? It, but the world is different. It's a completely different thing. The trick that everybody is trying to do right now, because even though, I mean, Chris, you know, I don't believe in residuals. That being said, residuals is so something sad. that the studios say, we do want to find out uh, a uh, formula, a, a new way for figuring out what residuals are. The unions clearly still want to have residual. They're going to come up with some sort of residuals thing. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how much it's going to be. But at some point, the two sides are going to create some sort of residual system. But it's going to be completely different from the way it used to be. And how to calculate that out. Like, for example, Netflix didn't pay much to the owner of Suits to license it on Netflix because it was a small show. I mean, yeah, it blew up, but they don't have to pay any more money for it. Um and those billions of views it got, it didn't actually generate any revenue. So they're going to have to find a new method and calculation that I'm sure SAG members, AMPTP, WGA members are trying to figure out what that looks like. Because I think what we can agree on, Chris, is you can't generate money from nothing, right? Yeah. You can't say, hey, something happens on the studio side that doesn't make them any money. We need to be able to get money from that. You got to find methods where... Revenues being generated on a secondary performance of a piece that we should get a certain percentage of. It's just a matter of, I guess, finding that ground. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the WGA, by the way, they um, tomorrow they sit down with the studios again and maybe there's going to be a proposal on the table. Um, do you so. have any have you heard any of your actor friends and other members of SAG maybe proposing some kind of new model for what a residual system would look like? I haven't heard much, honestly. Um, the The biggest thing that I've been part of lately have been the video game discussions. Right, um, that's been that's, big. And that's one where we're just so focused on AI that it's like residuals. We don't. We're not going to focus on that right now. We're going to focus on AI because everything we do literally gets tracked, copied, and put into a computer. So, got to make sure that that still gets set out there with our consent. <laughs> All right. Next up. We got Dr. Sinky writes, Hey, John and crew, happy 96th birthday to Rosemary Harris, born in 1927. Also, happy belated birthday to Chris Robertson, who would have turned 100 nine days ago. Wow, time passes. Uh, all love, bring on the filthy. You know, I know she's done a million other things, but I only, off the top of my head, only really know Rosemary Harris for playing Aunt May. <laughs> Yeah. In, in in the Spider-Man films. But even when she popped up in Aunt May, you like you see her like, oh, I've seen her in other things. I, I just don't know what they are off the top of my head. Uh, she's always Aunt May. But oh my God, born happy birthday, born in 1927. That's wow. awesome. Um, okay. Let's see. Uh next up we have, if I can get this brought up. There we go. Ula Tan writes. Um, hey, can't be a crew. I've been curious about this topic since I recently got a permanent residence to live in Canada. Congratulations. Do actors who film movies in foreign countries, for example, Canada, have to get a work permit? Uh, would they get paid in foreign currency as well? I wish I could have asked Aaron this question. I believe you do have to get, whether it's a work permit or a special temporary visa, I think you'd have to do that. And you're right, Aaron would be perfect to answer that because yeah. Aaron worked on a number of shows up in Canada, uh, including Flash and things like that. Chris, have you ever had to go up to Canada to shoot something or record something? No, I've done everything in the States. Or when I was non-union, I did a couple uh, video games for a Polish gaming company. Um, but that was when I was a non-union actor. So they just like 
PayPal'd me. <laughs> so um, you do have to get a work permit, though. And that is a great question for Miss Erin Cummings because she was constantly up there and constantly oh, yeah. will be. And, you know, she moved to New York recently, but yeah. they seriously thought about moving to Vancouver. They thought seriously about moving to Canada, her and Tom. Um, and, and yes, if as long as it's an American production, they would get paid in American dollars. Yeah. Because it wasn't, unless it was a, unless she went up to Canada to shoot a Canadian production of a Canadian movie or a Canadian show, but otherwise exactly. she would get paid in American dollars. All right. Just got time for two more here. Uh, Dakota Moon writes, I'm not sure if you all have addressed this or not, uh, but what is your take on the Rotten Tomatoes slash PR bot review situation? We have addressed this, but I'll, I'll touch on it again here. I don't know about, uh, I don't know a lot about it, but I keep seeing people using it to discredit Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. I don't know if you've heard about this, Chris, mm -mm. but so what happened was, first of all, it's being really blown out of proportion by people and I'll tell you why, but there was a situation where Rotten Tomatoes caught a PR firm that, first of all, the PR firm didn't think they were breaking any rules, but what they would do is they had projects that they represented that was were getting no coverage and they reached out to some uh, verified YouTube critics, not, not the high profile ones like Rolling Stone or whatever, but so, some of the lower ranked YouTube critics and offered to pay them to review to do a review of a movie that they were representing. Now, they did stimulate that you, it does not have to be a positive review. We just want you to review it we, because no one's reviewing this movie. We want you to review it. And, but this is where I think they got themselves in trouble. One person wrote to them and said, hey, if I don't like the movie, are you cool that I give it a negative review? And they said, you are free to do whatever you want. Of course, it would be really cool if you just didn't post your review if you didn't like the movie. Oh. That's where they got themselves in trouble. Now, you have to understand that there are over 1,000 critics on Rotten Tomatoes. I believe the number of people that, that were involved in this was eight, which made it like 0.0 something percent of the actual critics on Rotten Tomatoes. So there's a couple of extenuating circumstances. Number one, the system worked because they got caught. Number two, those people were removed. Number three, it was less than 1% of the people involved. And number four, the people involved who were doing it didn't think they were breaking any rules. Because again, remember, this wasn't a situation where a PR firm paid $10,000 to somebody to write a great review for a movie. They literally wrote them, paid them, and it was, it was like 500 bucks. It was something really small. It was some small amount to say, hey, our movie isn't getting any reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Can you review it? You don't have to make it a positive review. But then they shot themselves in the foot by going, eh, if you don't like it, it'd be cool if you didn't post it at all. But, but yeah, that's the thing. It was less than 1%. They got caught. The system worked. Anybody who tries, you know what this is like, Chris? It's like saying, oh, there was a member of an NBA team who admitted they didn't give 100% this season. That means NBA players don't actually give any sort of effort when they play. It was, it was like less than 1% of the players that said that. This is a nothing burger. It's a nothing story. Anybody who tries to say it's anything bigger than that um, is just trying to push their own agenda the system worked. The people got caught. The people who even did it didn't even realize they were doing anything wrong. 
And it was such a small percentage, such a finite percentage that it actually had no impact on anything. And by the way, these projects, this, this PR firm was doing, Chris, were these like nothing little projects, these outlier no. little projects that nobody was paying attention to. It's not like Warner Brothers paid somebody to give Harley Quinn movie a good rating. This was, it, it's such a nothing thing. I don't know. Did you hear about this or now that you uh, are he hearing about it, you any thoughts? I was wondering about this because I had, I, sometimes I'll just, you know, post a picture of my dogs and someone will write uh, something like, I'm so disappointed in you. And I'm like, well, get in line. Um, <laughs> and I got one of, it's so disappointing you haven't addressed Rotten Tomatoes. And it was like, do I need to address a company? What uh, what do I need to do? So thank you for explaining that. And thank you so much for making it a sports analogy so I could really absorb it. <laughs> so you could really <laughs> get the totality of the scenario. That, you know me and b-ball. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And, and by the way, that seems like nothing. It's another important thing to point out that this had nothing to do with Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes di didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. This was some outside PR firm representing some completely irrelevant little projects that thought they were just get, paying to get coverage. They didn't specify it had to be positive. Rotten Tomatoes didn't do anything wrong. They actually caught the situation and yeah. corrected the situation. And again, it was less than 1%. It was a 0. Point something percent of it. And it's it's a nothing story. It really yeah. is an absolutely nothing story. Unless it somebody's sounds, got an agenda and they're trying to no. make it a story, but it's nothing. That sounds like a headline that got clicked a bunch and an article that wasn't read. Yeah, yeah, it or not even clicked. It was like a headline no. people saw. It didn't even click. It's like, oh my God. Like, yeah, it, tomatoes, it, it was uh. a nothing story. Anyway, guys, that'll do it for today's installment of the John Campus Show podcast. We actually went a little bit over time because I, that, that, that 33 upcoming TV shows that went <laughs> segment went way longer than I thought That's it was going to go. Stuff. But thank you so much for being here and making this show part of your day. Big special thank you to our YouTube channel members for sending in questions uh, and for just being YouTube channel members and supporting what we do around here. I want to thank, of course, Chris Carr for being here. Chris, where can people follow you online? And, and you do, with that booth you're in, you actually do coaching and teaching people yeah. how to do voice work. Where can people find you and where can people find out about uh, maybe getting some lessons? Oh my gosh, thank you so much. You can follow me on Instagram. It's Chris Carr. And I have just posted recently, actually, I'm doing another intro to VO bootcamp. This is my last one for the year. So if you want a quick, like one Saturday kind of breakdown of how to get into VO, sign up for that. Otherwise, my husband and I run a voiceover and dialect school called Speak Friends Studio. We do voiceover demos. We do coaching. We do all kinds of stuff. And Logan can teach you the coolest trick ever, sounding like you're not from where you are. You'll be really cool at parties and trick telemarketers. I'm already interested in that. Uh, guys, that'll do it for us for today. Thank you so much for being here. My name's John Campia. And until next time, my friends, bye-bye.